This podcast is brought to you by the NATO Association of Canada and the University of Toronto's NATO Research Group. Ce balado vous est présenté par l'Association canadienne pour l'OTAN et le Centre de recherche sur l'OTAN de l'Université de Toronto. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us at the NATO Association of Canada's podcast in conjunction with the University of Toronto's NATO Research Group. Today, we are happy to have Josh Gold as our guest. Josh Gold was born and raised in Toronto, but holds a dual Canadian-Estonian citizenship. He, is work he currently works as a research assistant at the Citizens Lab at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. His research interests include cyberspace governance, military and intelligence capabilities in cyberspace, and internet governance. Josh is also a board member at, of the Canadian International Council's Toronto branch and of the Estonian Central Council in Canada. In 2019, he was a visiting fellow at the Hague Program for Cyber Norms and an ICANN 66 Next Gen Fellow. Among other work experience, Josh has interned at NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of, for, of Excellence in Estonia. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Nicole. Really pleased to be again with the NATO Association of Canada. Um, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a research assistant at the Citizen Lab and also uh, a non-resident visiting scholar currently at the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, or CCDCOE. But that said, the usual disclaimer applies. Um, I'm speaking my own mind and what I say today won't necessarily reflect the official views of either of those institutions. Wonderful. And with that, we will jump right into some of the questions that I've prepared for you. Um, so I think the first question really gets at the heart of cybersecurity in Canada. And many Canadians do not fully understand uh, cyber policy and why it matters. They recognize the importance of data breaches and malware. But I think that overall, International, the international significance of this is often misunderstood. Could you give us a broader perspective into what threats are in cyberspace on a national and international level? Sure, that's a, that's a pretty big question, but I'll do my best to answer it as concisely as possible. So cyber attacks are of course happening all the time on a number of different scales and leveraging different techniques and tools. And, We've seen even, for example, during the COVID pandemic, attacks against medical facilities and services, including hospitals, research facilities, public health departments, including in Canada, um, from, from simple, these range from kind of simple phishing scams to ransomware attacks to more malicious state espionage. And if I recall correctly, last month, one ransomware attack in Germany may have even become the first known case of a cyber attack to lead directly to a loss of life meaning that malicious actors, um, I think in this case criminals, um, tried to get money from a hospital by shutting down its systems and saying, it, well, uh, your systems are locked out unless you pay us X number of Bitcoin or whatever. And some, ladies, some lady had to be rushed from the hospital who was on critical condition and actually died in the ambulance as they were trying to get her to a different hospital. So things are, are, are quite serious. But of course, cybersecurity is a huge range, a giant field, and, and there are a whole range of cyber threats. Um, there are different kinds of threat actors with different motivations. So you have hacktivists who may be motivated uh, ideologically, you have criminals uh, who are looking for profit, 
you maybe have terrorists uh, in cyberspace, though it's iffy whether, whether there is such a thing as cyber terrorism or whether there are really cases of this, but they would be motivated, I presume, by political violence. There are people who might uh, do cyber attacks or kind of silly cyber activity just for fun, um, thrill seekers. Uh, there could also be insider threats like Edward Snowden at the, at the NSA who uh, became disgruntled or unhappy with, with what he saw as um, surveillance policies by the U.S. government and released a whack load of information that presumably um, or purportedly damaged uh, the United States intelligence sharing cap or intelligence capabilities. And then finally, and what I really want to talk about today is you have nation state actors who are motivated by geopolitical reasons and, and interests. And these, in my opinion, pose the greatest um, big picture threat both nationally and also internationally. Threats by nation states include attacks on elections, critical infrastructure. Uh, critical infrastructure, I suppose, could include power grids. So power grids in the Ukraine have been targeted by Russian um, origined, uh, <laughs> by attacks originating in Russia. Uh, there have been attacks against nuclear infrastructure in Iran, both uh, a decade ago and more recently. And um, also the theft of trillions of dollars in intellectual property. If I recall correctly, some US government figures have actually put the cost of Chinese economic espionage against the US at a value of some $600 billion per year, which is just uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty extraordinary. And, and this is the context around which I'll be framing my remarks today and, and around what I believe to be a large part of the national uh, and international policy and strategy focus uh, is and should be. Now, I'll focus on international issues today, or at least try to, depending on the questions, and also national security or defense, but, but more from a big picture perspective. So it's really not uh, going to be a cybersecurity talk at all for me today, but, but more of a foreign policy, national defense, and international security conversation in the context of state use and abuse of digital technology. And um, kind of going back to your question on, on the broader perspective of things. Well, ultimately, I think, or, or maybe what I'll try to argue today um, throughout my answers is that cyberspace is increasingly a domain of state competition, uh, where you have countries who seek to expand their influence, their power, and control. And through diplomatic efforts at the United Nations and, and other relevant international forums, some states are pushing hard to expand their own authoritarian models of governance online. I see this happening both in terms of cyberspace as well as also regarding the internet itself, where some states in that case are trying to actually shape and change the technical standards that control how the internet operates. Um, and, and they do this to kind of gain more control over information and technology. Now, cut me off, Nicole, if I'm rambling, but maybe if a couple more minutes just, just on on this point, and I can elaborate what, what to me is, is this concept of cyber governance, which I think is going to be central to these kind of policy questions uh, within, within cybersecurity. So cyber, cyber governance or cyberspace governance refers, in my opinion, to international efforts to govern how states behave in cyberspace, which involves the promotion of some sort of common framework for state behavior, including norms for how states should behave, international law, confidence or trust building measures between countries. And these, these efforts to govern cyberspace are, as far as I've seen and read, um, 
they're, they're challenged by a fundamental ideological divide between countries on how they see human rights and freedoms apply in cyberspace. You have, on one side, you have countries who frame free speech and access to information as existential threats. This is like China, Russia, other authoritarian countries, for example. And, and these countries have tried to assert sovereign control over the internet, and they really stress the term information security instead of cybersecurity when discussing threats in the digital domain. But contrary to this are countries, whatever you want to call them, Western countries, democracies, um, like the US, Canada, Australia, Japan, European countries, for, for whom it's, it's really vital that the internet remains free, open, and in line with democratic values. And I'm oversimplifying um, a bit here. It's not so black and white, but this general picture is, is how I'd like to frame, frame the conversation. And I'll surely touch on this later too. Wonderful. Well, I think that's a very good introductory answer. Um, and I especially enjoyed your comment about how they're seeking to frame it differently uh, between authoritarian governments and uh, democratic governments. Uh, but we can go back to that in a little while. Um, so let's move on to the next question. Could you explain how Canada has addressed cybersecurity issues nationally and internationally and some of the challenges it has faced? How would you describe or evaluate the approach that they have taken? We have taken. <laughs> well, uh, sure. Well, again, a lot, a lot to talk about here, um, and I'll, I'll do my best to to cover to cover as much as I can. I think um, I'll try to lean more in answering this question. I'll try to lean more toward the international side of things rather than the national. Um, and maybe I'll be a bit choosy um, in general, so as not to spend the rest of the conversation on this point, but. Of course, uh, you can let me know if I, if I ought to elaborate on, on certain things. A major way by which Canada faces cybersecurity issues and threats, uh, in my mind, that comes kind of top of mind when I hear this question, is through its longstanding membership in the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Partnership. So this is a um, sort of intelligence and security alliance, not like NATO, so it's not collective defense, but it's more sharing of, of intelligence and conducting kind of espionage or intelligence gathering operations together. Uh, and it's, it's between Canada, the US, the United Kingdom, uh, New Zealand, and Australia. So the kind of five English speaking countries. And, and it's come out, it came out of World War II even uh, when the US and the UK uh, came together in an agreement and then it expanded to, to include the, the other three countries. And as far as I've read and heard, the Five Eyes is really the closest closest partnership of them all um, in terms of uh, having an intelligence sharing partnership. Uh, it includes not only these countries' signals intelligence agencies, but also generally cybersecurity agencies, foreign and domestic intelligence agencies. It includes cooperation on policing, and it has really a huge global reach um, and unparalleled. Well, I mean, I don't want to say unparalleled because I don't know, uh, but it has very, very kind of top-notch access all across the world. And this is great for Canada because we get a ton of information through this. We also help out and hold our own weight, but we get intel from the United States, from the UK, from the Pacific and Australia and New Zealand. And it's a big, a big boon for us. But like everything, um, it, it has some, it leads to some trickier components. So we, Canada, are more of a net consumer of intelligence within within the alliance or within the Five Eyes partnership rather. Um, and this makes us rely on the United States for certain things, which 
can in turn then make uh, independent decisions that we might want to make as a country, for example, on 5G or specifically Huawei, a bit trickier. So if the US says, well, we think that Huawei, the Chinese telecoms company, is a security threat and we'll stop sharing information with you if you uh, have them in your networks, Canada, then Canada basically has to ban Huawei, um, as far as I understand things, because the, the, the cost of losing out on that US intelligence or Five Eyes intelligence would be so, so severe. So there's a bit of pressure there. Canada does uh, have several different institutions um, which deal with cybersecurity in different ways. Um, most prominently is the Communication Security Establishment, um, the CSE. And within that, there, that's Canada's Signals Intelligence and Foreign, foreign Cybersecurity uh, Agency. And within the CSE is also the CCCS, the Canadian uh, Centre for Cybersecurity, <laughs> I believe. And there, the CCCS, the Centre for Cybersecurity within CSE, is more public-facing. They monitor threats. They coordinate national response to cybersecurity incidents. They focus on critical infrastructure. They also, I believe, uh, contain Canada's CERT, meaning uh, Computer Emergency Response Team. And, um, and I mean, that, that leads to some issues in and of itself that could be a whole other podcast. The fact that Canada's com uh, Computer Emergency Response Team, its CERT, is within the same organization, which also tries to uh, penetrate and kind of get past defenses, get into things, break things, break through certain types of encryption, while the CERT, its whole mandate is to fix things and patch things and prevent um, encryption from being uh, eroded or, or kind of that, that sort of thing. But as I said, kind of another talk for another time. Related to all this in Canada is the recent passing of Bill C-59 or um, specifically within it, the, the CSE Act. Um, this was, C-59 was this huge omnibus update to Canada's national security kind of um, powers and capabilities, but specifically of interest for, for uh, cybersecurity was that it gave, it updated the CSE's mandate to conduct what are called active and defensive um, cyber operations. Now you can, uh, think what you want, but I, my sense is that active cyber operations really mean offensive cyber operations, meaning the ability to potentially disrupt, deny, deter um, adversaries, potentially cause effects uh, in those countries through cyber means. Um, and, and this was this kind of sentiment, this offensive cyber capabilities thing was, was preceded in the 2017 national defense policy called Strong, Secure, and Engaged, where the Canadian military um, revealed that it was developing these sorts of offensive cyber capabilities. I have, um, I've published alongside a colleague, Christopher Parsons, an article in Just Security um, earlier this summer, which looked closely at what Bill C-59 gave or enabled uh, the CSE to do. So feel free to check that out for more information. Of course, um, beyond that, Canada is also in NATO. Um, it, as far as I know, has joined NATO's uh, Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence uh, in Estonia, which is kind of a big military think tank focused on uh, issues of conflict in cyberspace. And uh, Canada has a national cybersecurity strategy from 2018. Um, I'm not its biggest fan. It's 40 pages of, of basically big picture, super broad fluff. Um, in my opinion, maybe there's something I'm misunderstanding, but it doesn't mention things like democracy or human rights. It's not specific. It's kind of a higher level coordinating document. 
And then um, Canada's pretty involved also in forums, uh, including at the United Nations, which I can speak to all day long because I'm very involved with these, but where, where uh, countries try to discuss and negotiate rules for the road, um, elements of international law, capacity building, confidence building measures, norms for responsible state behavior. Um, and, and this is mostly um, kind of under the auspices or, or the, the, the folks who deal with this are from Global Affairs Canada mostly, uh, which has a international cyber policy team, which was set up in 2017, um, many of whom I know and are friends with, and they're, <laughs> they're, they're a great team. And, uh, and within those forums, um, Canada has been pretty active. It's worked recently on some practical measures related to the implementation of norms. It's focused a lot on building capacity for less developed countries in cyberspace. Um, or, or in related kind of things, including cybercrime. And Canada's also been really um, outspoken on highlighting gender issues as they concern, or as they purportedly concern uh, cybersecurity. So I, I have some room for criticism, but I suspect, Nicole, you might ask about this in a moment. Uh, thanks, Josh. Yes, I am very interested in uh, probing a little bit more your opinion of Canada's foreign cyber policy. Um, so critics have, often said that Canada has lacked a consistent overarching uh, cybersecurity policy, especially regarding how we approach foreign policy in this area. Can you explain how Canada's approach might differ from other allies and how those allies have approached this issue? And also, if you have a chance, would you also uh, discuss the importance of publicly clarifying or articulating policies and strategy and what are some of the implications of not doing so? Sure, I'd love to. Well, I've, uh, I think I've become one of these critics that you, you refer to. I, um, at risk of kind of promoting my own work, I published alongside some colleagues an article in August, again, in a US publication called Just Security, where I looked, I kind of took a deep dive into Canada's um, cyber foreign policy, or actually maybe more accurately, it's lack thereof. Um, so uh, I'll, I guess I'll rehash some of those points, but if anyone wants to read a bit more on that, then I, I recommend uh, doing so. Really, since 2010, the Canadian government has recognized the need to develop a cyber foreign policy, uh, but, but it wasn't until, uh, well, actually, I mean, we, we still don't have one. So in, in 2018, the Canadian National Cybersecurity Strategy, which I alluded to earlier, saying it was a bit vague, uh, that 2018 strategy said that um, the strategy will align with a cyber foreign policy in Canada's international agenda. Uh, we're here now more than two years later, and Canada still doesn't have a cyber foreign policy. We were supposed to, one was supposed to come out in 2019. There are these documents that say, um, these documents from, I don't know, 2018 or 2017 that say, uh, by 2019, Canada will have its uh, international strategic framework for, for cyberspace or whatever they, they call it. Um, and we're still, we're still hearing crickets on that, though I'm sure, I'm sure some people are working on it. Um, but, but not having some sort of a cyber foreign policy or an international cyber strategy is really unlike Canada's allies and also adversaries, which have released strategies outlining their interests and values in cyberspace. And, and also they've, they've outlined how they plan to promote and defend these interests. Uh, and this isn't just allies like, like the US or UK or really big countries, but the Netherlands, Australia, Estonia, like the, the loads of countries have 
pretty clear um, strategies for this stuff, and Canada seems to be behind in this regard. So what I, what I argued in the article um, that, I, that I referred to is that a comprehensive and well-developed cyber foreign policy is needed to replace the Canadian government's current ad hoc and spasmodic approach. I think that a consistent articulation of its foreign policy position in cyberspace is pretty necessary for Canada so as to promote and defend its interests effectively. And Canada's cyber foreign policy should moreover be developed transparently uh, and the policy must also reflect, reflect enduring Canadian values such as respect for human rights and other democratic principles. So I, based on my kind of year and a half of, of looking into this stuff and what Canada has done and hasn't done, um, I, I'm really under the view that, that we need to articulate what we should be promoting or defending uh, because it, this might not be super obvious, but cybersecurity is really kind of a discussion of political philosophy. So not, not everyone shares the same understanding of what cybersecurity is and, and what should be the object of security. Kind of like I talked about how Russia and China focus on information security. Um, and, and there isn't really a shared understanding of what constitutes a threat. Is it just free information? Is it fake news? Is it actual um, groups who are acting maliciously? Canada says that we're transparent um, in cyberspace about a lot of things. It kind of calls on other countries to be transparent. I don't see a lot of transparency. Um, maybe I'm looking in the wrong places. Maybe I misunderstand what transparency should be. Uh, but for example, um, I, a colleague and I put out in early February, what's called an access to information request uh, to the Department of National Defense for their uh, joint doctrine note on cyberspace operations, which is this document that the DND has. It's been referred to in public documents, but the document itself is classified. And um, I wanted to, I was interested in seeing what our cyberspace doctrine is um, for operations because the US, the UK, other countries have released their doctrines and Canada has this access to information process that's supposed to help the government be more transparent. And, and of course, if it's something that's too sensitive, they'll just say no. But, but it's, I think the ATIP, the access to information process, is supposed to have a 90-day maximum. Um, and we, we sent it in um, in February, beginning of February and still haven't gotten anything back uh, whatsoever. We know that they're working on it. but um, So that's a bit disappointing and, and questions the, um, the transparency element. Uh, but I, again, when I, when I say this, um, and when I, when I share these criticisms, I do think there is a really great and competent team at Global Affairs Canada working on this stuff and probably elsewhere as well. Um, I think some of the issues, for example, preventing uh, a cyber strategy from being published, uh, maybe come from higher up, maybe they're a resource question, but so kind of my sense is if it's accurate at all, is that if there's anyone in government listening to this, I'm not so much criticizing the folks at, at Global Affairs themselves who, who actually write this stuff and work on this stuff, but, but maybe some of the higher up uh, management who might want to uh, push them or, or enable them to, to get the strategy out. I think that's a very understandable position to take. Um, you know, we know that the people at Global Affairs do a lot of hard work and sometimes it just gets, um, just get slowed down by the politics at the top. Um, but I just want to expand a little bit more on what we were just talking about. Um, and to try and get you to talk about, well, yes, it is important that 
um, things are publicly known and that there's transparency, but we also do have to keep some things under wraps just from a security perspective, don't you think? Yeah, I agree. I think it's, uh, it's a question of finding that balance um, of what classes of information can be and should be shared. Like for example, should uh, a doctrine on essentially, essentially like the playbook or rules for, for around how, maybe rules of engagement for, for how Canada might use its offensive capabilities that we're developing um, in certain ways. Obviously you're not going to say what the capabilities are specifically or um, what they look like, but, but certain things like uh, will they comply with uh, norms that, that Canada otherwise supports at the UN? Will they um, be in line with international law or humanitarian law? Will they kind of align with our human rights values? Um, and, and, and more kind of public discussion around certain things. I think, I think there's a way to, to kind of improve transparency without giving, giving away too many secrets. Maybe, maybe I'm in the wrong and really everything that Canada's put out has been the most they can do without compromising um, uh, national security capabilities or, or, or cap um, I guess, abilities. But, but I think that, that there's a balance and that the balance is at the moment skewed a bit more toward the untransparent side. I guess with, I mentioned the global affairs uh, cyber policy team, right? Um, and in other countries like Australia, they also have equivalent policy, uh, international cyber policy teams and they have a whole website for their team. They do these uh, civil society, multi-stakeholder consultations. They're very out there. With Canada, I think an ordinary citizen would be hard pressed to find any information at all about even the existence of our international cyber policy team. Um, you can't find it online. There's no website. There's almost no mention of it on the global affairs website. Um, th things like that. Like I think at least raising a team like that to the public eye and saying, okay, we have this team, this is what it does. Um, that's something that wouldn't compromise any kind of national security uh, equities that I can think of, but would also contribute to a better public understanding and discussion of, of some of these issues. A very fair point. Um, so I also just wanted to get you to expand a little bit more on the areas that the Canadian government has been prioritizing and what are some of the benefits from those priority, uh, priorities and some of the implications of it? Sure. And, and of course, uh, bearing in mind that I'm looking more at the international stuff, more at the cyberspace governance stuff. So I'm, a, of course, probably missing a lot of things, a lot of probably good work that's going on domestically. Uh, but, but in the context of, of the international, uh, Canada has, has been, it's, it's very focused on gender issues within cybersecurity, partly aligning with with Trudeau's uh, sort of feminist forward foreign policy. Canada's also pretty focused on what's known as capacity building. And I think I've said that term a bit before, but, but really it refers to um, helping build capacity of other countries who are maybe less, less developed or, or less um, well off. And, and, and that can include a whole, a whole range of things. It can be capacity building in terms of lawyers getting together and understanding how to decide what their country's positions are on how international law applies to cyberspace and kind of these big groups of lawyers that just eke over all sorts of details and, and, and help each other uh, move forward that way. There's capacity building um, about cybercrime 
um, and how to like from from technical, for example, from detecting and forensics uh, and police work all the way to um, to side capacity building in policy fields. So training diplomats and and in this in this kind of priority area, if if indeed it is a priority area for the government, which which is my view, um, is it, Canada has been quite good. It's spent uh, several millions of dollars. Um, I think last number I saw was 13 or 14 million on global cyber capacity projects since 2015 to train all sorts of local officials in legal, technical policy fields. And, and it tries to, uh, it, the, the global, global Affairs Canada tries to do so, so as to influence countries to share Canada's vision of preserving an open, secure, and multi-stakeholder led inf internet. Um, but but again, without kind of a bigger picture strategy on top of all that, I think it's, it raises the question of how do these individual kind of capacity building efforts align with broader Canadian objectives, whether they're human rights or, or, or whatnot. Um, like I wonder whether there ought to be some sort of a document uh, on, on the higher level that can then coordinate all of these efforts. Uh, the capacity building is, is quite good. Uh, it's largely uncontroversial among different countries. I suspect that there might be more kind of, um, not nefarious, but more under the surface uh, things related to capacity building. For example, I think Canada works a lot in the Latin American countries and Canada under its five eyes commitment is more focused on Latin America as a region. And so maybe there's some sort of security relevance to the fact that we look at that region or maybe I'm totally off. Uh, I only have uh, access to open information here, uh, but but the capacity building stuff is is important. Uh, it it there are a lot of countries who in these global cyber governance debates haven't really come up with a strong position for where they stand, um, one way or another, and what kind of camp they support, whether it's the more democratic camp or the more authoritarian camp, and kind of working on them with the narrative, kind of working with these countries and saying, we support an open internet. Uh, we see these freedom, fundamental freedoms and human rights as actually being in the interests of us and you. Uh, they can lead to more open uh, economic development, more open markets. Um, that kind of a narrative and, and narrative promotion, I think, can be important, especially when you compare to the sort of Chinese style capacity building, which includes going into some countries and helping them surveil their own populations, uh, building infrastructure that would help their countries shut down the internet or control free speech and that sort of thing. I don't know if the Chinese really call that capacity building or not, but it does build a capacity. It just, it depends what kind of capacity you're building, whether it's a repressive one or a, or a more progressive and an open one. And then lastly on this, um, as I alluded to earlier, Canada is also prioritizing uh, offensive capabilities, as far as I can tell, um, with Bill C-59, um, enabling new, new powers and capabilities. Um, eventually, we should have some sort of position come out uh, from Canada on how we think international law applies in cyberspace, and that will be relevant as well to our more kind of um, offensive and conflict-related um, steps. And interestingly, uh, there was a report that came out in September by the Belfair Center, Belfair Center at Harvard, Harvard University, that put Canada as the number eight cyber power in the whole world, which <laughs> I wouldn't have really thought, uh, but they, they had a complex um, methodology for doing so. And maybe even though Canada is a bit quiet and you might not think it's one of the top 10 kind of global cyber powers, 
this report certainly seemed to think it was. Wow, that is a very interesting, interesting piece of information. I hadn't heard that. Um, so the next question is a little bit more on the women's side of cyber. Uh, you had mentioned that there had been an effort in Canada or a perceived effort to increase women's participation in cyber as part of the feminist foreign policy that has been promoted by the Trudeau government. Um, what do you think of Canada's attempt to increase women's role in cyber? And do you think it has been successful? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, you're right, and you're right to call me out on not uh, elaborating fully on that in my previous point. Um, and well, I said under the current government, foreign affairs have generally been guided by this this kind of uh, feminist uh, feminist forward series of policies that are targeted toward achieving gender equality and the empowerment of women. And Global Affairs Canada has uh, has sponsored and led a bunch of research on the topic. So, for example they uh they sponsored or or supported two two scholars actually both both friends of mine Alison Pitlack and Deborah Brown who wrote a pretty good report um on gender dimensions of cybersecurity in the context of of the kind of global cyber governance stuff at the at the UN and i so i recommend anyone interested in the topic to check out that report by Alison and Deborah and uh, Global Affairs has organized events on the topic. Just last month, they had a Women in Cyber event that uh, I unfortunately didn't join, so I can't speak in detail about that. Um, and there are a few other scholars they support. There's a, a scholar out of Waterloo, Sarah Shoker, doing some work on, on uh, gender and cybersecurity stuff. But if, if it sounds vague to you as a listener right now, it's because as far as I can understand, there is a lot of vagueness uh, within it. I think a lot of the research is trying to figure out how uh, gendered perspectives and dimensions do apply in cybersecurity and specifically in the international and uh, like interstate questions. So the stuff that's going on at the UN, of course, there are uh, more understandable or clear areas, for example, gender representation um, and diversity, having um, close to as many females in the room as males and often these, these uh, forums are pretty male dominated. Um, and, and that, in that regard, uh, Global Affairs Canada, along with some partners, including Australia, has helped a lot at these United Nations working groups. They've, sponsored, they've held these women in cyber fellowship programs that have sponsored uh, women experts uh, from all sorts of countries to attend and actually uh, participate in these, these meetings, including on behalf of their countries. And, and this effort actually, in February, the Women in Cyber program made UN history when it became the first ever meeting in the first committee. The first committee at the UN deals with um, international security issues. It was the first meeting in, in the first committee where there was ever a gender balance among the people delivering remarks. So, and, and that, was, that was a Canadian effort. And I think that, that kind of thing matters. Uh, but but there's also, there are also elements of, of the kind of gendered focus in cybersecurity that seem a bit unclear, uh, that seem a bit pushed from the top I don't really like, I don't really want to use this, uh, this term, but there's a term virtue signaling um, that maybe uh, is a more political, higher level reason for, for some of this, this focus. Canada was, as far as I know, the first country to actually raise gender issues in uh, some, some of these top United Nations forums. And now they're, they're raised all the time. So Canada has been a leader in that regard. But I think there's still 
a bit of a lack of understanding uh, on how to uh, emphasize coherent gender-based policies or gender-focused policies, which clearly integrate within a larger agenda um, and having kind of gender as a consistent element. So not just on uh, getting women into the room, but also maybe how does the kind of uh, women and security or women, peace and security agenda apply on security issues, on defense issues, on offensive cyber issues. I think that those are kind of questions that, that global affairs and other Canadian government arms will still have to work on. It sounds like they will have a bit of a challenge ahead of them. Um, so I want to leave Canada for a moment, or at least look at it more broadly. As you said, you focus more on the international and security elements. So one of the major criticisms that has been around um, trying to create a Western or trying to create a cyber policy is the idea that the West and Canada have broadly benefited from the rules-based international order that came out of the post-world war period. Uh, critics, including Russia and China, have noted that the West helped to create the rules and argue that we are trying to do the same thing in the cyber realm. How can we work together with countries like China to create international rules and regulations without sacrificing our values and security? Uh, well, that, that's another great question, which could be a whole the, uh, PhD thesis or something if I ever do a PhD, and I, at this point, I hope I don't. Uh, but uh, there are, uh, I think there are some ways that we can work together and other ways that we cannot. So I, I really do think, based on my understanding of the picture, is that there are fundamental differences on how we understand and conceptualize um, a number of things, including what cybersecurity actually means, what the object of security is, um, this classic uh, trope of information security versus cybersecurity. Um, and, and so you have, on one hand, global approaches that are valuable. Um, I write a lot about the open-ended working, open working group at the United Nations, uh, which has been uh, since September 2019, this major forum, a new forum, first time ever, uh, where all countries in the world have the chance to come together and discuss their views on international cybersecurity issues, mostly focused on norms, rules, principles, international law, confidence building measures, capacity building, regular institutional dialogue, which basically means like having a forum to, to discuss these things. And, and I think that's valuable. That, that brings, there have been 120 countries who have spoken uh, at this UN forum and, and in some way articulated or elaborated on their national views and what they think of various different issues. Uh, that's good. That really helped it, it, this, this forum, which now has been derailed by COVID and is now all online and it's way tougher for these people to discuss things and negotiate with each other and have meaningful kind of frank exchanges that you would other have, otherwise have on the margins. But, but groups like the OEWG, this big working group, um, are global and are good and are very important. Uh, but at the same time, I think there is a move, a kind of well-justified and understandable move toward coalition-based approaches for certain things. Uh, things like upholding or imposing consequences in response to violations of norms. Um, things where global action if there, for example, was a need to con for consensus every time uh, when countries wanted to respond to a malicious cyber act, I think it would be very hard to get consensus because the usual suspects of <laughs> Russia or China or North Korea or Iran 
uh, would would veto or block um, or would deny or or do whatever. And and same goes look for when the U.S. Uh, or Israel or its its other partners um, conduct their own their own cyber operations. Uh, there there are increasing calls uh, for. I mean, Rob Knacki in the in the U.S. Uh, calls a democratic internet. I think or a uh, what former Estonian president Thomas Henrik Ilves calls a cyber NATO that would kind of be a NATO, but without the borders. So it would kind of just be like-minded countries that focus on cyber things on with collective defense, a collective defense element, but they also have similar values, but they, they could include Japan and Australia and, and so-and-so. Um, and, uh, and so, so there's this kind of mix, um, the, the dangers of trying, I guess, um, to, to keep pushing for global solutions could be that, in my view, based on being at the UN and at these forums, is that one, one side might be more sincere than the other uh, in certain ways. I don't want to say that the US is a perfect actor and, and is, is more sincere, but generally, um, if the US agrees to follow certain international laws or norms, um, it's my view that they will do so a lot more at least than, than Russia might. So Russia uh, regularly goes in, in, in front of these UN groups and it calls, uh, calls for the outlying of defama defamation campaigns or disinformation or propaganda. It says that all states should agree to never launch uh, disinformation attacks and that, that this is really bad. But of course we know how hypocritical and cynical the Russians are about this when they're, they're doing so themselves or at least have, a, have quite a history of doing so. Um, so I, I guess, um, Long story short, I think it's it's worth trying to work globally, uh, but uh, there is a coalition-based approach emerging for certain things, especially for imposing consequences. And I think this is only um, a reflection of reality. Well, that is a very comprehensive answer and leaves everyone with some big questions to think about. Um, we are quickly coming to the end of our time, but I don't want to let you go without asking you one NATO-specific question, especially in light of your answer. Um, so NATO has previously agreed that cyber attacks are grounds for invoking Article 5, the Collective Defense Clause. Um, however, the idea that this would be invoked for a small or even specialized attack on a specific country is cause for uncertainty. With international reluctance to act together on cyber defense, how can countries like Canada and the international community hold bad actors accountable? Well, this is another <laughs> great, great question, a uh, big question. I'll try to uh, save time and be as brief as possible. I'm not so much a NATO expert. Um, Article 5, uh, the NATO has agreed that, that cyber attacks are, as you said, are grounds for invoking Article 5. And, but there, there are thresholds for, for what would constitute, um, an, as far as I understand, an armed attack. Uh, and there are lots of lawyers who have been working on this. For example, there's a Talon manual process out of the NATO CCDCOE in Estonia, um, the, the Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, uh, that works on, on establishing kind of uh, rules uh, and, and kind of working on, on what those thresholds are of what kind of or classes of actions um, should or are fair ground to trigger trigger a response um, and kind of on on international reluctance or how how can countries hold bad actors responsible or to account well it's i i alluded earlier to a, an increasing kind of coalition based approach and there's this 
uh, approach, I suppose, or an initiative called the Cyber Deterrence Initiative that's talked about in some documents and quietly is being talked about more and more. It seems to be gaming, gaining steam. And it seems to be, based on my read of things, uh, it seems to be based on the notion that, okay, we have these norms, we have international law, we have these things that we've agreed on at the UN, but the norms are voluntary, they're non-binding. Uh, we need some way of imposing consequences. Um, and this includes, uh, this is not so much if uh, Russia shut down all the electricity in the US and it led to tens of thousands of people dying, that would have a very clear response, but it's, it's exactly these smaller or even uh, smaller attacks that you, Nicole, uh, mentioned in your question. So things that are kind of in the gray zone, things that don't necessarily meet the level of armed attack, but are still malicious actions. And so what a lot of countries, including the US, uh, through the Cyber Deterrence Initiative have kind of understood or have agreed upon is that, again, this is just my interpretation, but it's that um, if a country, say uh, North Korea, does some sort of attack that is malicious and violates some norms, um, those countries could together reserve the right to respond and impose consequences, whether through offensive cyber means, whether through sanctions, whether diplomatically or something, but kind of together um, respond in that way. So I, I think that would be the more likely uh, scenario to kind of small attacks against NATO countries, depending, of course, how small they are and what, what damage they cause. Uh, but, but I think there would be some sort of a coalition collective response to those, or at least that's the, the goal in mind for a lot of these countries. And this is, this is beyond NATO. I think it's, it's similar actors to who are in NATO, but I think it's also, um, also countries like Australia, uh, maybe Japan, maybe South Korea, um, other kind of like-minded countries that might not be in the traditional NATO format. A great answer. And it's wonderful to hear that um, cybersecurity is really taking the lessons that we've learned from physical security in the idea that collectively we, we are stronger together and we're able to have a more prosperous and peaceful life. Uh, so thank you so much, Josh. It has been a wonderful conversation. Um, and we would be happy to have you again, uh, if you ever would like to join. Um, and just thank you so much for your time and talking our audience through this very complicated, but very interesting topic. No problem. Thanks so much for having me for the opportunity. It's a timely subject. I hope most of what I said was accurate and understandable and not too rambling. Um, I'm very keen and enthusiastic about these things. So uh, please forgive me. Uh, if I if I spoke too long, but I had a lot of fun with this, and I I look forward to uh, further engagement with the NATO Association. Thank you so much.